Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Five. Today I will talk with Talia Stroud from the University of Austin in Texas. Talia is a professor at the Communication Study Department and does a lot of research on how to design digital spaces in a de democratic way. Let's dive into this conversation. For us, entrepreneurship is not necessarily about starting or running a business. It's a state of mind, a principle of life, and an approach to dealing with problems. This is Five, your university podcast on female entrepreneurship by the Munich University of Applied Sciences and the Strasheg Center for Entrepreneurship. We strongly believe in diversity. It's just so much more fun and exciting. Diversity in food, in cultures, in places, ways of living, learning, creating and doing things. It's this desire to explore that we all have in us to see new things. And yes, to be curious to look what's behind the next corner. Hey, Talia, great to have you in our podcast show and welcome. A pleasure to be here. So do you want to tell us a bit who you are and what you're doing I am happy to. So I'm Talia Stroud, and I'm a professor in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas. Uh, I also direct the Center for Media Engagement, and I'm a co-director of a project called New Public, which has created some civic signals to try to improve digital space. And all of my work is really trying to think about what's the role of media in a democracy and how could that be improved? Yeah, this is actually how I got to know about Talia. It was through the Creative Mornings community and there's always sending out um, really nice newsletters <laughs> with uh, interesting projects from all around the world. And yeah, the title really stood out to me like it was um, designing digital spaces and what can we learn from designing public spaces and also the aspect of diversity and democracy. So I think, yeah, this is such an important topic and um, that's what we want to learn more about in today's episode. So can you maybe set up at the ground of What is it, um, your research motivation? What are you doing? I'm happy to. So the project really started when we were thinking about what is it about um, what's happening online that's problematic and what is it that we could do to try to improve what's happening there. And really the base of all of this was, oh, wow, lots of things are not going exactly as we might want them to be. So there's a lot of misinformation. There's hate speech that's taking place online. And we quickly realized that, oh, a lot of people are actually tackling these things. And that's really good and really important. But what is it that we're kind of missing from this picture? And what we quickly settled on is that we were actually missing a way of thinking about The, the good. So even if you got rid of all this really bad stuff, it doesn't mean that digital space is a place where we'd want to be. It might mean that it's a place that's, you know, kind of meh or middling. So we, we thought it was really important to supplement what's been happening right now with some sort of pers a perspective on what would good look like. And as we thought about this, we really started to settle upon space as a productive metaphor for thinking about what would be an ideal way to think about what's happening online. 
And this is because so many of the metaphors that we typically use for what's happening online are things like information superhighway or big data. And they really bring to mind like a bunch of zeros and ones and the exchange of information from one computer to another. And what our perspective is, is that that's actually that that metaphor is problematic because it misses the really relational and rich way in which information is exchanged between people who have you know, different social norms and have different ways of approaching the world. And so from that, we really settled upon the idea of digital space. And what the research has really been aimed at doing is figuring out how do we figure out what a good quality digital space looks like? What do people want from these from these places where, especially in the pandemic, we're increasingly spending more of our time? What I read is like you analyze different social media platforms, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe can you give us some examples from from the research, what you found out? Absolutely. So uh, what we started out doing was just talking to people and trying to figure out what sorts of things they like about uh, digital spaces. And from there, we started settling upon these, we've called them signals or these uh, these criteria that make a productive digital space. And then from there, we did some focus groups um, in five different countries. And then we did these surveys, which is what you're talking about, where we were asking people, what do you think about the platforms? Do you think that they're doing well or that they're doing poorly with respect to these criteria that we had uh, come up with? And we asked them questions about, you know, how, how well do you think they're doing with respect to providing reliable information? Or how well do you think they're doing with respect to at keeping people's information secure, cultivating belonging. And we asked only what we call super users. These were people who used particular social media messaging or search platforms most frequently relative to other social media search or messaging platforms. And so we were able to come up with these essentially rankings sharing how well the platforms were doing with respect to these signals of, of flourishing digital space. And how are they doing? <laughs> so yeah. how, how was it? <laughs> how are the results? <laughs> are they already doing good or medium or rather low? <laughs> yeah, um, I wish I could tell you they were doing really well, but um, unfortunately they're not. So we examined a number of different platforms across the 14 signals and people were able to rate them anywhere from zero, which means that everyone said they were doing poorly, all the way to two, which is everyone said they were doing well. And of course, no platform got a zero or a two. But across all of the platforms we looked at and all of the signals, the highest we saw for anything was a 1.5. And that was for um, Reddit on cultivating belonging. But everything else was below that point. So I think that this, this shows... A, that they're not doing very well on these. And I think the reason is B, that they actually haven't focused on these things. Most social media metrics are focused on making sure the user has a good experience. And often that's operationalized in terms of how much time did you spend on the site? Did you come back? Did you click on things? And those are not the same things as what we might think of as community metrics or like societal metrics. So Uh, there's there's a lot of room for improvement, and all platforms had areas in which they uh, they they could improve. At least the ones that we looked at. Again, we we obviously weren't able to look at all of them, but we looked at uh, the major ones. 
Yeah, I think this is something that's currently um, a topic. Um, how algorithms, are they really able to push a democratic society in the digital space or are they hindering us? Um, so I think this is something that probably also your research um, goes into um, to show that, um, yeah, it depends how you design things and what is your motivation behind the design, um, what will actually then bring out of like um, in this in the digital space, right? Yeah, absolutely right. So when we first started this project, the prompt that we were using when we were talking to people was, if you could optimize for something, what would you optimize for? And getting people to kind of think along those lines. And as the project has progressed, I think there's still a, a component of that. But I think it's even bigger than that now in terms of it's not just algorithms, it's in terms of like the design from the beginning, how do you decide what you're going to do? And that I think governs so many choices that you make from the very beginning of uh, any social media or any platform. And I think it's, it's actually uh, much bigger than algorithms, which is crazy to say, given how uh, important algorithms are to this space. Um, but I, I think it, it it is like a fundamental question of when you start to design or when you're thinking about the way that your platform is going to serve people or who it's even going to serve. If the decisions are we want to serve advertisers and that's maximized by keeping people's attention as long as we possibly can, regardless of what the consequences of that might be, that leads you to a really different product that doesn't uh, align with many of the principles that we uncovered for what people would ideally want to see in these spaces. So I think for existing platforms, you know, they have internal teams dedicated to all sorts of things, like, you know, a team dedicated to understanding what's happening with misinformation. Um, and I think that this could be a framework for teams that they put in place inside the companies and that their job is really to think through how can we design better products and design a better space that really embodies some of these aspects that people say are really important to them. So for instance, across all of the platforms that we surveyed, um, none of them did particularly well at encouraging the humanization of others, despite that being a signal that we heard people repeatedly say was important to them. And so why not have a humanization team within these platforms to think about how could we do this better the other thing that we've really been a fan of, of doing is kind of the mental exercise of playing with the space metaphor, which is thinking to yourself, where in just your everyday life do you end up with these principles? So you might think about, you know, if you're at a park with your kids, just chatting with your neighbors, that you get a lot of information that way, that you build uh, connections with others, you feel a sense of belonging, and it really does humanize others when you're there, you know, telling your kid to, you know, not eat the wood chips or whatever it is. And so you can take that experience and then think about how could you create a space that has something similar to that online? And where is it that we're falling short? And so I think there's kind of a playful aspect to going in between offline and online space that can be generative and really unleash creativity for thinking through this. 
So I think uh, for existing platforms, that's what I would encourage. And then I think for new platforms, if from the very beginning, you're thinking about how to create this space so that it embodies these ideas, um, I think that we, we can and will see really different ideas about how digital space could look and how we interact with others in it. So yeah, I think that This is a really important aspect, what you just mentioned, on how to create a welcoming atmosphere in the digital space. Um, just to tell you from my experience, there is this couple, um, they are based in Canada, and they do meditation and sound baths online. I think it's a wonderful experience that people from all around the world are joining in. And in one of their meditations, there are usually about 150 to 200 people and they are called pause and expand and I never really thought that even if we were just all connected with the headphones through a smartphone and we were all based all over the world that just by joining in this one time slot all together that such a strong bond and community could evolve and that really stood out as like one experience in the digital digital space that was really stunning for me. Yeah, agreed. I think it's just, it's amazing how you can feel a sense of belonging with people you have never met face to face, but there's still some sort of comparable, I think, bonding that can happen in digital spaces. What do you mean by that? I mean, when you are interacting face-to-face, -face, the way in which you establish connection and trust is by mutual exchange of information and coming to rely upon someone. And I think those similar sorts of things can happen in, in digital space, whether it's you trust that you're showing up every day and that all these other people are showing up for meditation at the same time. And as you're doing it over and over and you're familiar with the ritual of how it's done, that really creates a bond between you and the other people And I think it's a similar sort of thing if you're part of a group on Facebook, for instance, or if you're um, part of a community that discusses something with a particular hashtag on Twitter, or if you're part of a subreddit, the same sort of bonding can happen with, with, with individuals across, across very different geographies and time zones and people who wouldn't have necessarily encountered each other in their day-to-day -day lives. They can still come to have that that sense of belonging to a particular group. Yeah, that's true. And to get back to this question or what we just discussed about like digital learning that sometimes different people might engage in the classroom whereas other people uh, might be more likely to engage in the digital space. I, I think that as I'm reading now a lot on gender diversity and women's entrepreneurship There's a new research strand that goes into the line that maybe a digital space can be also less gender focused and more open because sometimes in the digital space it might be a more, more anonymous or less gender focused compared to a classroom where you see exactly how many women and men are, are present. What would you say? Have you researched also in this line or Was this an aspect in the signals that you looked into? Uh, we did look a bit into the signals in terms of how men and women differed from each other in terms of which signals they found important and how they rated the platforms. And when we looked at that aspect, uh, 
in general, uh, what we find is that women were more likely to uh, rate the platforms positively. Um, and they were also more likely to think that the signals were important. But even beyond that, and some of the other work that I've done, it really is interesting to see how gender plays out in digital spaces. So we did an analysis looking at um, women's comfort and extensive commenting on news platforms, so in news comment sections. And we found that women were less likely to do so um, with respect to national or international politics. And this was in the U.S. context, but they were more likely to do so with respect to local politics, which is an interesting observation. And a lot of the news organizations that we looked at had commenting systems that uh, identified your gender. Uh, so, for example, Facebook, where you're using your <laughs> your real name, where people can make inferences about your gender. So it'd be interesting to me if you could reverse that, <clears throat> excuse me, or change that if you uh, didn't have, if you allowed aliases and if you allowed people to not use their their real names. And I think that there's also ways in which platforms like Zoom uh, perhaps help with, with some of this. So the ability to raise your hand during a conversation. When you're in a meeting room, uh, if it's dominated by a few people, it's easy to get kind of lost in that conversation. But on Zoom, you can just, you know, put up your hand and then it's up to the moderator to to uh, call on you, essentially, in a way that's, I think, softer and less less butting in than you would be in a real conversation in a in a meeting room. If you raised your hand in that space, it would seem surprising and kind of odd, but it's OK in digital space. So I think even when you're visible in these digital spaces, there are still things that the platforms can do to help allow better gender dynamics. Mm. And also maybe just also different types of people. I mean, what you said that sometimes maybe someone feels more uh, comfortable in rating than in speaking out loud. And in Zoom, you have the opportunity to actually use a chat, whereas like in a normal classroom teaching setting, you don't write like on paper and <laughs> pass on the note <laughs> to your teacher. But maybe that would be something that we could generally think of, whether um, also in offline classroom teaching um, to have the opportunity to write um, a question, let's say, not maybe on paper, but with like an app or whatever, um, could also give um, people who prefer that style of expressing themselves um, as their um, way, let's say. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I can... Yeah, I don't know. I can just... From my experience when I was a student, I also sometimes... There were definitely moments when I had a question in mind, but then there was like... I felt not comfortable in that moment of like raising my hand even so it might have been like a good question but then there was a different vibe and I didn't want to interrupt or I didn't feel comfortable in that moment or in this group or whatever so I just kept maybe silent and probably every one of us can has a situation in mind when that happened but yeah I think um, actually it's a it's a good um, thing Uh, that we have in Zoom meetings that people actually use both speech and uh, writing. 
Yeah, definitely agree. As a as a professor during that moment, I have to say that there's definitely a learning curve on how to do it because the first Zoom class that I did, I found myself, you know, sharing the information for the day, but also reading the questions and kind of awkwardly mm. interrupting myself. And it takes a little bit of time to figure out how <laughs> yeah. to navigate that and keep the class flow going. But it's definitely possible to do. And I think, like you said, it it, it allows people with different comfort levels to participate. And I think that those comfort levels are probably correlated with all sorts of demographic attributes that you'd want to have voiced in a classroom. Yeah, that's true. I I definitely agree that for the one who is teaching, like organizing both, it's a way of like how you structure it and um, doing both simultaneously, like um, kind of keeping people engaged and like transmitting knowledge and uh, and reading the chat is like, yeah. <laughs> wow, <laughs> like it's almost impossible. Or at least like last time I had like a coaching with some of my coworkers on e-learning and and then there was people typing and then there was questions and I was like, oh, okay, I, I, I screwed up <laughs> sort of or I thought like, okay, I can do either this or that. But I mean, it's just like a matter of how we organize and how we set the stage. And I think that's important. Do you want to share with us a bit your motivation to choose being a professor as a career path? And was it something that you already knew from a young age on or how did that happen? Uh, I did not know from a young age on. I, I think I had just a true variety of career aspirations. Um, and then even when I was an undergraduate, uh, when that experience was coming to a close, I applied to grad school, but I always had in the back of my mind, you know, if that doesn't work, maybe I'll try to do consulting or something like that. Um, and uh, was fortunate enough to get into several graduate schools. But even when I started my graduate school experience, I would say I was probably two years in out of a four-year experience that I finally decided I wanted to be a professor. At the beginning, I was still, you know, oh, maybe I'll go and do some sort of government work or some sort of, I was still uh, infatuated with the idea of consulting And I think about two years in, I had the wonderful experience of working on some research with uh, my faculty supervisor. And I started, you know, putting together the pieces of, oh, wow, this is a career where you can research whatever you want and you get to decide the pace of that. And there's really not a boss in the same way that there would be in all of these other career choices And you get to spend your days talking with smart colleagues and smart students and thinking new ideas and reading what's new in the world. And at that moment, I was really hooked. I was like, oh, I want that. <laughs> so that that's that it took me a long time. I'm sure other people are much faster at figuring that out. But uh, yeah, about halfway through graduate school, I decided that that was the future for me. Thank you so much for taking time for us and speaking about your interesting research and your career. It was really a pleasure to have you in our podcast, Talia. A true pleasure. And thank you for doing this. I, I uh, had the opportunity to listen to the, other, uh, the others and it's just fantastic that you're doing this. This was Five, your university podcast on female entrepreneurship. We hope that today's episode sparked your curiosity and leaves you feeling inspired and motivated to explore further. 
Follow us on Spotify, Deezer, iTunes, or Google Podcast to never miss upcoming insights on inspiring startup stories. Thanks for listening, and until next time.